Hello and welcome to this podcast on biologics for asthma. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Shemita Katri. She's a co-director of the Asthma Center at the Cleveland Clinic, and she's also an associate professor of medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Thank you for joining us today, and welcome. It's my absolute pleasure to talk with you today. Thanks for inviting me. Shumita, can you tell us briefly about existing biologics for asthma and uh, their place in therapeutic escalation? Certainly. I think those of us who take care of patients with asthma and particularly concentrate on a practice with severe asthma, we have been waiting for this opportunity to offer more targeted therapies for our patients. Essentially, up until now, all we had was high-dose steroids. The definition of severe asthma, once it's ensured that it's not due to other confounding conditions, is related to being on high-dose inhaled steroids or routine oral corticosteroids to maintain stability or at least keep them from getting more out of control. So the severe asthma population, which is only 10% of all asthmatics but can take up to 50% of resources to care for them, they've, they've been waiting for this and so have we. So we're very excited about the place in biologics. In addition... Uh, GINA guidelines, Global Initiative for Asthma, in 2016 offered up that in Step 5 therapy, when asthma is so severe, that biologics, such as the latest one, mepolizumab, be considered. So there's absolutely a place for biologics in the care of patients with severe asthma once it's confirmed that it's all asthma. And when other options have been exhausted, it's natural to go to Step 5 therapy and it's been endorsed by expert panels. I should also mention, perhaps, that nowadays we are considering more not just the phenotypes that we physically see or descriptive characteristics of our patients when we try and categorize how to care for them and also how to treat them. We are now adjusting our way of thinking into being more along the lines of their personal endotypes. And endotypes are essentially the subtypes of conditions as defined by distinct functional or pathophysiologic mechanisms. So you can imagine that patients with asthma may all wheeze or cough, but what is the underlying pathophysiology that's driving that wheeze or cough? That needs to be further examined so that we can target the pathophysiology, monitor them over time, and hope for recovery or at least control. And the most important thing to do around this is to target more specifically, and that's where these biologics become part of our toolbox. We are familiar with omalizumab that has been available for many years now. In your practice, do you see a large percentage of uh, non-responders? As far as omalizumab goes, uh, it's a anti-IgE blocker, and it has been available for about 10 years. And so we have a good amount of experience because up until now, that was the only biologic we had. We were encouraged initially because we knew that omalizumab would, in patients with moderate to severe persistent asthma who had IgE levels from 30 to 700 international units to ml and a perennial allergen, that in children, adolescents, and adults with severe allergic asthma, that there were demonstrated 
improvement with exacerbations, asthma symptoms, and quality of life. However, we have all realized that there are limitations to even this biologic, and I think the studies have shown that around 50% may be non-responders or partial responders to omalizumab therapy. So all of those positive effects that were demonstrated in the studies are not equally distributed among all people on omalizumab. So our experience here is probably similar to others, where it's about you know, 50-50 where you see a profound improvement and the other other 50% may have either a partial, incomplete, or non-improvement. So that's that's been our experience and it seems to be that's what the large cohort studies are showing as well. Shamita, uh, what characterizes those patients that fail to respond or that are partial responders to omalizumab? As far as non-responders or partial responders, I have to admit that it's difficult to predict. One would think that those with profound allergies would all respond, or the ones with just one perennial allergen sensitivity would not respond, but that is not always the case. What has been recommended is to monitor people after 16 weeks of therapy and look for those implications or those effects, such as the reduce exacerbations or reduce use of steroids or rescue medication use, and improve in quality of life. Usually by four months, you get a bit of a sense, although I have noticed that sometimes it takes longer. So it's a little bit unpredictable. I should also mention perhaps that though the dosing guideline is weight-based and there's IgE upper limits that are recommended in the package insert, I have noted that several patients who are outside of those weight limits and are dosed at the highest allowable dose still do respond. So this goes back to, again, the idea that we may not have it all precisely determined which patients respond to what, but I think responsible use of resources, including knowing when something is not working and perhaps to switch agents, or knowing when it is working and understanding potentially why is important. We need some better ideas, and these are studies that are coming out as far as when do you know that someone has done well with omalizumab, and how long do you continue it, and is there a role for tapering down the doses? These are still unknown answers to these questions. Now, you mentioned some new agents, uh, specifically mepolizumab, available to treat patients with severe asthma. Can you tell us more about your experience with mepolizumab? At our asthma center, because of the amount of patients that come who have had severe asthma, there have been quite a few patients in involved with the treatment of of their severe asthma with mepolizumab. Dozens of patients, literally. And I think that until this was available, we had clinical trials. And once these agents like mepolizumab have become available, we are now able to put them into clinical practice. And so a big backlog of patients who were perhaps counting on steroids for such a long time are now being given this new therapy. We select patients based on the criteria that is recommended, that they have eosinophilic asthma, which does not have to be allergy-related, and that their asthma is so severe that they are needing um, high-dose inhaled steroids or oral steroids, in other words, step five of treatment, step five and six in our NAEPB guidelines. Based on that, we are also monitoring not just their eosinophils, which do go down almost immediately. We monitor to find the effectiveness similar to what has been demonstrated with improved quality of life, uh, improved symptoms. 
less rescue use um, of albuterol. So we're monitoring over time to see who seems to be responding, who may be more refractory to responding. And in the real world, it's not as clean as a clinical trial. So we are accounting for that as we're monitoring for improvement or non-improvement. Now, you also mentioned that big group of patients that were uh, tried on omalizumab but that didn't respond to a therapy. Can you tell us, you know, if you're transitioning patients from omalizumab to mepolizumab, and if, if you're doing that, what are the clinical characteristics of those patients that you're switching from omalizumab to mepolizumab? Now, that's a great question. It's a very clinical, clinically relevant question that many of us are asking. When do you know when to switch? Well, some of the answers have already been given to us. When somebody, a patient who is not responding and has decided not to continue with therapy. So if that kind of a patient comes to us, we start mepolizumab if they fit the criteria. I guess the, the follow-up question to that is, do you give any uh, washout period to these patients when you're switching from omalizumab to mepolizumab, given that we know they have a pretty long half-life? From the standpoint of clinical trials that we've been involved with before, patients who who were on omalizumab and wanted to be on the trial, they waited 120 days. However, when we look at that elimination half-life, we're trying to make medical judgment that they probably don't need to be without therapy for that long. And we're going with about um, six weeks in between so that there's not enough overlap to cause the adverse effects, but enough time to supplement their asthma therapies. At least six weeks after omalizumab, we're waiting before starting mepolizumab. Now, there's not a whole lot of data around this, except that we are using our judgment, clinical judgment, but we're watching for any adverse effects in the form of, you know, basically registries that we're keeping. In addition, uh, another exciting opportunity is that just because the first biologic, if that is the one that you chose as omalizumab, doesn't work, switching or transitioning or stopping that and going to mepolizumab may still be fine in the sense that those who are non-responders to omalizumab may equally respond to mepolizumab and that there wasn't a difference. Some retrospective analyses showed that you know, there was equal quality uh, safety data, but that they people who were on omalizumab versus not on omalizumab previously but fit the criteria for mepolizumab did just as well as if they had never seen omalizumab before. So this gives us, again, option that just because you've tried one biologic doesn't mean that you've tried them all. And speaking of other biologics, there was also a recent approval for reslizumab, which is an antibody that is also targeting the IL-5 pathway. Can you tell us more about your experience with reslizumab? I would like to say I have a great deal of experience with reslizumab, but unfortunately, I do not here have that experience. I've been involved with the mepolizumab trials and have instituted that here. We're waiting to start a few patients here on reslizumab. I'm excited to know that there are alternatives. The pathway is very similar. We do know that there is an improvement in lung function in people, particularly with high eosinophils and nasal polyposis in that subgroup. So perhaps in the future we may go to reslizumab first. However, as everyone may be aware, that reslizumab is an 
medication that's delivered intravenously, and uh, mepolizumab is delivered subcutaneously. So naturally, in a busy practice or for a busy person or patient, that uh, the IV formulation, if they're equivalent, which I don't really know yet from my clinical experience, you know, they seem to be similar in outcomes. The subcutaneous route seems to be the one that would be preferred in most instances. You mentioned that response in non-pulmonary disease with some of these biologics. What is your both personal experience and what do we know specifically about how these biologics modulate extrapulmonary disease or, you know, associated issues with severe asthma, you know, either driven by IL-5? That's a very good question. Omalizumab, we know, uh, has broad effects and can help chronic allergic rhinosinusitis as well. So I've definitely seen improvement in patients who suffer from not just the asthma side, the allergic uh, TH2-driven asthma, but also from the sinus disease, which can be associated or driving the asthma as well. So I've definitely seen improvement in a, a, a good portion of these patients. Um, of course, there's also an indication for chronic urticaria, which would not would not necessarily come to the asthma center first, but where uh, there are other options for that a- that agent to be used in chronic urticaria as well. From the uh, mepolizumab standpoint, with its uh, it's been looked at for Churg-Strauss, and it's been looked at for you know other eosinophilic disorders, but they're not indicated for that, so we're not specifically treating those conditions. However, we do see that patients, again, with nasal polyps and chronic sinus disease, as well as the severe eosinophilic asthma, seem to do better. And I I don't have a percentage for you. I have a handful of patients like this who perhaps either just started or been on it just a few few months who seem to notice that their nasal congestion's a little bit better and their asthma's better at the same time. So one of the things that we're doing here is we're partnering with our rhinologists who take care of these patients with nasal polyps and chronic sinusitis, and one is driving the other, lungs and sinuses, to see how both ends of the airway are being modulated by this biologic uh, mepolizumab. And as actually, as reslizumab, as we start using that, we'll be looking at that as well, too. Well, that, I think that's great because frequent comorbidities appear in these patients, and sometimes we see that they're Asthma is, is well controlled, but some of their of their extrapulmonary symptoms are poorly controlled and sometimes drive some of the activity that we see. Uh, we're excited and we're really looking forward to hear more about these uh, non-pulmonary effects of, of these biologic therapies. Yes, um, I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's a very exciting time for, yeah. for, for uh, asthma at this point, uh, asthma therapeutics. And these are just some of the available uh, therapies, but what kind of new biologics are on the pipeline and expected to be available over the next few years? Mm-hmm. Yes, I hear your excitement in your voice with the options for asthma. I feel it as well, too. It's just exciting to know that we have more tools in our tool chest and that there are others that are being designed. Of course, there's other biologics, such as the anti-IL-13 biologics, such as lebrikizumab, which, again, has been shown in a subgroup with high periostin levels and high NO levels to improve lung function and reduce exacerbation rate. We remain hopeful about that. In addition, dupilumab, uh, which has uh, act- activity over two different and overlapping receptors by uh, attaching to IL-4 receptor alpha and 
blocks IL-4 and IL-13 related downstream effects by blocking that IL-4 receptor alpha. Very exciting around that with decreases in exacerbation. So we know that, again, having choices among these biologics will make a big difference. And also, that doesn't mean the biologic pipeline is not the only thing that we're considering. We're thinking about um, cell receptor activators. We're thinking about enzymatic activators. Uh, We're thinking um, about calcium-sensing receptor uh, blockers. So there's just so many other new emerging therapeutics because as we understand the difference in the different types of asthma, the clinical trials will be targeting these patients, whereas in the past perhaps we would have looked for all asthma what works, most of the time inhaled steroids, right? We now will have targeted therapies for those severe patients who continue to do poorly on the moderate to severe regimen. And what can we do? Well, we need to understand their asthma better and finding out ways to find the biomarkers or get a better sense of where their pathophysiology is stemming from will really help us be a lot more thoughtful and a lot more targeted and let us get our patients to better control and back to their lives again with minimal side effects. So I'm very, very excited. Well, it's great to hear about all that experience that you have accumulated at your at your center, and we really appreciate you sharing all that knowledge with our ATS community. So before we finish, we would like to ask you for any closing remarks, anything else that you would like to add to this conversation on biologic therapies for asthma. Well, I appreciate the opportunity for a summary comment. I, I again, just want to underscore the excitement around all of us who take care of patients with asthma and severe asthma in particular about the future. The innovation seems very bright and hopeful, and how we use these resources responsibly will really allow for more of these options to come available. And importance, again, goes back down to the basics of really making sure it's asthma, making sure patients are taking their medications and and fully part of their care you know, have self-efficacy. And when those cornerstones are there and you know for sure that it's severe asthma, now having a whole host of options that are increasing is extremely exciting. So I'm very happy to be part of the ATS community that is working hard to address these concerns and find new therapies and just very happy for the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Amida. You know, it's been a pleasure talking to you and learning about this exciting topic. 